Since March 2020, collectively our experiences, relationships, and framework for understanding our day-to-day lives have changed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a society, we're navigating these challenges, seeing new opportunities, and facing the fear and beauty of the unknown as we adapt. Lore Arts has been collecting stories and talking to artists, farmers, academics, community leaders, and members who share their experiences and perspectives during the pandemic. I'm Fanling Suen. And I'm Ali Roback. And, and this, this is Pause. Pause. This conversation was recorded in June 2020. Today we interview John Mays, who is a Toronto-based writer, fundraiser, and theatre creator. He is a practicing Zen Buddhist focusing on figuring out what that truly means. You can find him sitting on the porch or online at www.jrrmays.com. John, maybe you could introduce yourself. Hello. Well, I've lived in Toronto most of my life. Even though for about five years I lived in Halifax, I lived in the Middle East for about half a year and traveled for a considerable amount of time, I somehow have winded up very close to where I started. Just uh, getting back full circle. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, in your bio, you, you talk about figuring out what it truly means to be a Zen Buddhist. Can you elaborate on that? When people find out that I live at an, a temple residence, which is like just like an apartment building next to my temple owned by the temple, they automatically assume that I'm like kind of like living in a very communal environment, like no shared, no privacy and like living a kind of like a monastic life. And then the, the kind of logical question follows like, hey, do you identify as that? And I always balk at that because like, sure, yes, but I it doesn't really make too much of a difference whether I identify with it or not, uh, at least in my in my mind. Like when I was growing up, I ad- identified as Christian, but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how much that actually had any bearing on my actions or how I felt about myself or other people. So I don't know. I'm just not the, I guess I'm not the type of person to hang my hat up on that. And in terms of uh, not understanding what that really means or trying to figure it out, it's it's just it's a difficult thing to figure out what it, what uh, you know a full life of practice really means. Probably takes a, a full life to figure that out. Uh, it could take many lifetimes. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe if you could describe, kind of paint a picture for us on what your home and what that space looks like and the day to day where you live. So I live with my partner, Tamara, and our cat named Boris. Our space is an apartment in kind of midtown Toronto, uh, just at St. Clair West, uh, Mm -hmm. just off Vaughan Road. So it's on a busy road, but with the temple next door and just kind of the way it's set up, we get a lot of privacy and a lot of quiet. Um, the, The sound of the street really doesn't carry into the backyard. So when we're sitting out there, it's really, it's a, it's a big change from a lot of other places in a very big city where the, the noise is nonstop. Right, yeah. Oh, well, what about the um, kind of cross dynamic with the temple next door? And maybe you can expand a little bit more about about your relationship with that with that space. So it's really wonderful to live in a place where 
you have a relationship with your neighbors, um, even though they're like very close by. Uh, I know all of them in passing. There's no large commitment to, you know, be very involved with each other's lives. All of us have very, lead very different lives, but it's just comforting to know that you know the people around you, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the days when people were very, very hesitant about going outside. Just going out our front door, we would see somebody that, that we know, uh, that we can have a small conversation with, just, you know, really kind of pass the time with them a little bit. And it was just little, little tiny things like that that help sustain, uh, sustain you, uh, mm -hmm. especially when you're having a hard time. It's, it's that perfect little bomb to make things a little bit better. Uh, and in terms of the space itself, it's really great that I live so close by. As the temple is now open again to the public, I've kind of been going back to services, which are daily, morning and evening. It's really nice to sit with other people. And it's uh, a unique community because we spend the majority of our time together in silence. Mm. Uh, very close together and in the same room, uh, but silent. You know, I've been coming to this temple for four years, maybe five years, off and on. And uh, it's, a very unique relationship with, with people that, you know, you, when you come to think of it, you've only had a handful of conversations with some of them, but you've spent hours and hours and hours together. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite an interesting mix. Within a community, there is individual solitude in, in a way. Maybe mm -hmm. you can expand a little bit about your relationship with this. Well, I think any community really kind of helps to amplify a, a certain type of feeling. And one of the biggest things that our practice at the temple kind of has in, in common, we have like a, a sign near the front that has a bunch of, you know, principles, ideas about the community and the practice. And one of, one of the biggest ideas is noble silence. And that it is only when you are quiet yourself and then also work to quiet your mind um, mm. that a real depth of relationship can develop, whether that's with yourself or with other people. Uh, so, you know, when we have, um, sometimes we read books together, whether it's, you know, scripture or just a, a new book on a certain topic in Buddhism. And I find those conversations are really nice because no one is trying to talk over each other. There seems to be no competition of who's right or who's wrong. Everyone has their own perspective. And huh, for the most part, nobody runs on and on and on about an idea <laughs> just for fun. I am probably one of the more guilty ones when it comes to that. Yeah, it's just, I was just actually reflecting on your bio here. It's such, a, it's such an interesting mix with your background in theater, which... I guess I'm, I'm projecting, but thinking it's quite a extroverted, performative mm -hmm. craft. And then also the opposite of that, like this intentional craft of taking on this noble silence or, or practicing two to three times a day, uh, sitting in silence with yet also a group of people. And so mm -hmm. there's a dynamic in terms of the chemistry between these two, two dichotomies. Can you speak to that? Actors have a very funny thing with uh, solitude where, yes, they're doing this repetitive uh, outward gesture and very kind of um, socially or um, interact. There's a lot of interaction. There's, it's based on relationship, mm -hmm. but they need the depth 
of knowing that what everything that they are doing has a certain intention mm -hmm. to make it feel effortless. So you rehearse over and over and over again so that the intention that you've crafted for yourself and your role becomes effortless. So effortless effort, which is really interesting. And probably the thing that I like about theater the most. And effortless effort is actually a very similar thing to a meditation practice, uh, at least the one that I work on here is that if you, you know, start to sit down, even as a beginner, uh, mm -hmm. to sit down and want to achieve something with a meditation practice, it's probably going to elude you. Like if you're if you're sitting down looking for peace of mind, um, it you probably won't come very easily. If you're sitting down looking, I will have razor sharp focus and only focus on my breath. <laughs> your mind will carry you away to absolutely everywhere and anywhere. Yes. Yeah, same kind of balanced approach is needed for both of effortless effort, which, you know, seems like a contradiction, but um, it takes years of practice to really kind of get it to the point where you think that it may actually be going somewhere. Yeah, just kind of reflecting this um, dichotomy of creating a desire for spending a time by yourself but amidst the pandemic, we are reaching out more than ever as social mm -hmm. creatures, whether that's through the internet or social media or different kind of online meetup platforms. We're just using all these tools kind of as a bridge for connection, but arguably, ironically, we have less and less time to be by ourselves. So yeah, it's amazing. Why do, you, why do you think we're so drawn to this and also so terrified to be alone? It's a weird kind of flip coin of being a human being where on one side, you know, we have a very long evolutionary history of needing other people to survive. We mm -hmm. can't make it alone. When we feel alone, when we feel lonely, that is our uh, evolutionary biology telling us to reach out, to connect to other people mm -hmm. because there's a threat to your survival if you are alone. Um, so we're, we're constantly driven to be social and we're like incredibly social beings and loneliness. I don't know. I've heard like, it's actually detrimental to your health to feel lonely on a, on a regular basis. On the other side of the coin, being alone, we are drawn to it because we also live in a time when we are bombarded on all sides by a lot, whether it's um, just the, you know, the device that's in your pocket uh, or having to, you know, live your everyday life. You're, you're out in the world. A lot of things are coming at you uh, and you sometimes want to retreat from it and put it at arm's length. And now more than ever, there's less of an opportunity to actually have solitude in your life because even when we are, you know, at home trying to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe, we feel alone because we don't have that physical connection, but we also are never really alone if, you know, a phone is in your pocket and at any time it could vibrate and push something into your life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you have to make a deliberate effort with, uh, with the devices that we now rely on uh, on a daily basis. Um, to to have a certain boundary with them or, of, or otherwise they're just going to keep throwing stuff at you and you'll never have that opportunity for solitude even when, you know, you could be as far away as possible. 
and you just made a deliberate effort quite recently yourself. Um, you did a 10-day meditation retreat. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. It was a Vipassana retreat. Uh, and Vipassana is an ancient Buddhist meditation technique. Vipassana, I've heard translated as insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, but also seeing things as they are. Mm. I've also heard as another translation. So it's a 10-day retreat. You're there with about 100 other people. I was up in Egbert, Ontario. It was in the wintertime. Uh, and 10 days of no talking, no books, no phones, no diaries, absolutely nothing. If you have a problem, there are people that you can go talk to. If you have an issue, you don't understand what's going on. Of course, the teachers ask you some questions occasionally to make sure that you're actually doing the technique properly. You know, a little, a few little things like that. But you're not chit-chatting with anybody. Uh, you're really supposed to. The only obligation that you have, I think it was from 4.30 a.m. to... 9 p.m. is to meditate. It's a very tight schedule, the same kind of thing day after day. You're in a room, uh, the, there's a major room for the three major sits of the day for one hour each, uh, where there's about 100 people and you're all facing the same direction. Uh, you're listening to the voice of a man named S.N. Goenka, who was uh, a very famous uh, 20th century uh, meditation teacher uh, and created the organization. And we listened to recordings of him, even though he passed away a couple of years ago, just because he built it from the ground up. He was a very uh, good teacher. Mm. Uh, there's, you know, has had tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of students. I think there's about 150 centers around the world. It's a, it's a very large international movement. But the technique, or what we did, waking up at 4.30 in the morning for the first three days, uh, you were only obligation and meditation practice is to focus your concentration on this on the sensations uh, in a small triangle between your nose and your upper lip like just the fluttering of the breath whether it's the fluttering of the breath the sensation of air of hot air going onto your upper lip with exhalation the cold air with the inhalation the movement of your nose hair going in and out you're asked to focus on the subtlest of sensations, anything that happens in that upper lip. And of course, over three days, you spend most of the time thinking about the life you just left behind. Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? I have to do this for 10 days. Am I able to make it through? Hey, do you remember that thing from grade four? They were really mean to you. Oh God, I treated them so badly in high school. I was such a bad friend everything starts coming up. And then you're like, all oh, right, I'm supposed to be thinking about my nose. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you were like, and a half hour later, you're like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. The sensation on my upper lip. I forgot about that. And you bring wow. yourself back. But that's, if anything, that is more the practice. Mm -hmm. It's catching yourself and bringing yourself back. Practice, Present. practice. Yeah. Yeah. So you do that for three days as everything kind of settles down in your mind and then on the fourth day, you learn the, the, the technique of Vipassana, which in general terms is body scanning, is bringing your attention to uh, your entire body. And uh, first starting with little points mm -hmm. and kind of going through to see if you can feel the sensation of the body at its subtlest level. You go through your entire body uh, from head to toe. 
you know, at the beginning, it would take an hour and I would only be halfway through my body. But, you know, you're doing it for another six days. So you get good at it or you try. The technique is about observing the sensations of the body and developing a sense of equanimity to whatever is present. Whether it's a painful experience in your leg or a feeling of exhilaration that all of a sudden comes in your stomach, uh, like butterflies that suddenly appear, whatever is present to develop uh, the same approach to it, to observe it, to say, ah, this is what this is, and then to continue. Mm. So to not attach yourself to the pleasant sensations and push yourself away from um, adverse uh, sensations, painful sensations. Uh, and probably the best example of this was on, on the sixth day, I was having really sharp pain uh, in my right knee. And when we would sit down for an hour without breaking our posture, without opening our eyes, without moving our arms, without standing up, you're supposed to have a sitting of strong determination for one hour. I'd spend about half that time focusing on the pain that was in my right knee. I've never had a history of pain in my right knee. I tried sitting in different ways. Whatever my position was, there was something going on there, which was just the splitting pain. And I think the thing that bothered me the most about it is that the second that the hour would end and I would stand up, the pain would disappear. And I would have no problems walking. It's like it never happened in the first place. And it became so strong that I was, I didn't want to sit anymore. And the more kind of free time that you would get where it's like, you're not sitting 100%, you can go take a walk, go to the bathroom, go to, you know, whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm. I would just, I just wouldn't sit. I would just go outside. I would just walk and go around. Uh, and there was, there was a building that was being put up, a new dining hall on the, uh, in the grounds. And I was taking a walk around there and they had a suspension rope just kind of cordon it off from the rest of the uh, from the rest of the site, and in the wind, it was just vibrating really, really quickly, almost making a wobbling sound as I went past. And I'm like, "Whoa, this thing is like getting out of control." And so I just decided to reach out my hand and like to to see if I could like feel that vibration, whether carry my arm with it, what would happen. So I reach out and I touch it just with a couple of fingers. Completely stopped. I let go. And that entire vibration had just kind of stopped altogether. I had mm. like completely, with a very small touch, gotten rid of the movement of a 30 long suspension rope, 30 foot long suspension rope. And there was something about that one tiny, totally insignificant thing, which helped me to get past this I was almost like focusing so hard and attached to focusing on the pain in my leg. And there was something about this light touch that stopped so much that, I don't know, it, it just struck me. And then after that, as I would come through my body scans and I would approach my knee, instead of anchoring on that pain and using that as like, ah, oh, this, this is my practice, I need to work through this knot. I would just say, okay, that's painful. Let's keep going. I, I need to, you know, continue the practice throughout the body. And as I brought my attention to other places, that pain would not stay the same. It would dissolve. It would change. It would tingle. It would break apart. It would come back. And it ju wow. just made me realize that, like, you know, what you pay attention to um, 
has an effect on what actually happens. And the, the obsession that I had with the pain in my knee um, colored the entire experience that I was having on the retreat. And the second that I took a lighter touch to it, something that wasn't so serious and heavy, just a very light touch, and treated it just like any other emotion that was going, uh, sensation that was happening in my body, it just, it dissolved, it changed. Uh, so a little tiny thing like that was, was probably one of the like things that has stuck with my practice the most. There's been no big epiphanies, nothing like that. That's a pretty um, big epiphany. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a tiny little thing, I guess, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, subtle touch. How do you see the relationship between solitude and introspection? I think they go hand in hand. Uh, solitude and introspection. Uh, a, a solitude is a prerequisite for introspection, and I think that introspection and self-reflection is one of the, the 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 greatest things about humans is that we're able to do that. It, it's in many ways, you know, the awareness that we are living in a world is the thing that separates us from a lot most other animals uh, to varying degrees, of course. But it's a prerequisite, totally. Um, you need solitude to have a sense of introspection. If I, I you know, in my the writing that I do, it, uh, if I'm trying to hit a word count for a single day, if I'm trying to get to, you know, a goal, and I have my phone in my pocket, it's always going to be coming out whenever I hit a wall of I don't know what to write next. Um, it's the first thing I'm going to go to where it's like, oh, maybe I should just take a break. And you know, it doesn't allow you to dive deep within yourself and see things that, you know, maybe kind of floating around in your subconscious and that if you're, you know, paying really close attention may kind of come close to the surface. I don't know. So kind of bridging those two worlds then um, of, of the insights that you've kind of gathered over the years and your personal experience uh, right now with the pandemic is... Is there something that you can, you know, say to folks right now in terms of some of the practical benefits of, of practicing with an intentional um, way of reframing solitude? Yeah. When you choose to learn how to have a relationship to yourself in solitude, in chosen voluntary solitude, even for five to ten minutes, you start to see that the, the fear and the physical sensations of fear that come along with that feeling of solitude, they're not necessarily, they're not dangerous. They're not going to strike you down where you stand. Yes, they hurt. They can hurt a whole lot. But when you, it opens up the space for you to have a relationship to your own pain, to see it stings right now, but if I, if I keep paying attention to it, what changes? How does it change? You know, like I said, kind of re reflections on my Vipassana retreat and the physical pain that I was having in my knee mm -hmm. when I wasn't afraid of it, it's, it changed. It would go from a strong, sharp pain to sometimes a dull pain, sometimes to a buzzing, tingling sensation, and sometimes nothing whatsoever. But the physical 
sensations of the body and the mental sensations of thought need time to play themselves out. And when the first time loneliness rears its head, if we instinctually push it away, I'd rather watch Netflix, I would rather do anything except feel alone, you're never actually going to feel the whole feeling of loneliness. And of course, I'm talking more in a context here of scenarios of chosen loneliness or mm-hmm. chosen isolation because yeah, I'm it's it's a it's a very it's a very difficult thing when you're when you can't when you can't make that choice for yourself. But for people who have the opportunity to start to spend five to 10 minutes willing to just sit with themselves and see what comes up in their mind and to see how that makes them feel. Uh, it's, it's something that a lot of people try out a couple of times and it's not for them. I have a lot of friends who suffer from PTSD. It is not for them. It is dangerous for them to, to, to feel the physical sensations of their body when they their body is traumatized. They're, it's, it's, it's dangerous. And speaking from your own experience, John, um, like what have you been thinking about or, or learned over the past several months? Uh, mm. I think that it's okay to take things day by day when you're having a hard time. You don't need to worry about the long term if you're having a large difficulty here and now. And it's okay to say we're t- I'm taking things day by day right now. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of up and downs of, you know, for four or five days, I'm feeling fine. And then just like t- everything tanks and emotionally, I'm just devastated and out of energy and just, oh, and those days are just the days where it's like, all right, we'll just take it, take this day as it comes and see what happens tomorrow. That's, I think everyone needs to give themselves more credit. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, and just be a little <laughs> bit nicer on yourself. That, like, if you're feeling bad, it's not an indictment. Sometimes feeling bad is the right response to something that is really difficult. Um, and I think that the last thing that I've seen is that this is a wonderful opportunity for us to remake the world. I have a lot of friends who are out on, on the street on a daily basis um, fighting to make sure that we live in a more fair and just society. Mm -hmm. A society that we have known for a very long time has been ruled by white supremacy and is designed to enable one type of person to succeed and everyone else to not succeed. And I think the massive interruption that's happened right now has opened up a window and made space for people to see that You know, the story that we got when the epidemic started is we're all in this together. You know, this can affect anybody the exact same. And it patently hasn't. Mm -hmm. And even in the midst of an epidemic in the United States, 40 million people out of a job, you know, a man can still be killed because of the color of his skin. And so this is a fantastic opportunity for what we've known to be the truth for a very long time. It, there's such an interruption right now that we actually have the opportunity to change the world. And so it's, it's really, it feels like a, a malaise and just like um, um, a, a defeatedness has been taken off people. 
that everything has been taken away from them. And they're finally saying, I have nothing to lose anymore. I need to fight for something that I believe in. And I think that's really, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, uh, John, for taking the time today to uh, chat with us and share your your insights and your experience on uh, intentional solitude and meditation. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Mm -hmm.